Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, we look at the retirement crisis. Will we have enough money to keep ourselves in food and clothes after we quit our jobs or were pushed aside for being too old? If our own pensions don't cover it, has the government got enough money to keep us going? If the answer is no to both those questions, which obviously it is, otherwise why would I be asking it, how do we solve the problem? Why have we got it so wrong? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, retirement has always been problematic, hasn't it? If you uh, save up, you can live on your savings, and there's tax incentives to encourage you to do that. If you don't save, then the state is obliged to pay your pension, a lesser one, admittedly, and that can create some resentment amongst those who've saved hard. And because governments are trying to balance their budgets and people are living longer, they're repeatedly pushing back the age at which you can receive a state pension, ignoring the fact that many people become unemployed many years before, perhaps in their 40s or 50s, because they're too old to have the physical grunt to perform the work, their body is knackered, or they're in an industry that treasures youth over experience. So how should governments be dealing with old people, short of just letting them die through inadequate healthcare provision. Uh, it's a big question, isn't it, Steve? I mean, we've, we've got this problem that governments don't, you know, tell themselves they haven't got the money. Uh, and meanwhile, other people have saved money, but it's probably not enough because interest rates are going nowhere. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a total mess, basically. You know, it, it horrifies me, the situation we've got ourselves into. I mean, the easiest solution in some ways, well, let's let people die and see what happens politically. Uh, but it, but it's, it's, in, it's insane. I think we're just um, buying Donald Trump's replacement. <laughs> just let them die. Yeah, well, unlike Donald Trump, I know what I was doing by saying that, but let's, let's, let's keep rolling. Um, the, the, the whole... It is one of the. There's so many fallacies that are tied together into this one bundle. For a start, the idea that individuals can save, therefore societies can save. That's wrong. Mm. Um, the idea that it's the amount of money we've got set aside, which is true for individuals, it's false for societies. Yeah. All, all these things come together, and the fact that the government, the belief the government should run a surplus, um, which is actually destroying money, they're all tied up in this particular so-called retirement crisis. And you really have to separate each of them out step by step to work out just how much sense is being made well, by each of them. So let's do it step by step. Let's, yeah. let, let's start with the idea that I save for my own retirement. Is that a good mm. idea or a bad idea? Or should we just say, no, the state will provide for you. You take all the money that you've got now spend it mm. in the economy because that's good for the economy and we'll look after you later on. Yeah, well, for a start, accumulating wealth, individual, your own individual wealth, obviously, is beneficial for you. Um, now, how do you how do you do that? People think, well, I'm, the way you do it is you earn, you, you spend less than you earn. Therefore, you acquire a, a, a stack of savings, which in the future you can then live off that savings over time. And there's, a, there's also a demographic process going through the whole thing. So there'll be young people who are dis-saving, borrowing money, and in their old age, they'll start They'll start uh, – well, they'll be saving in the young – this is the weird bit. The, the logic goes that you're supposed to save when you're young and spend when you're old. So that's that's the idea and you end up having 
zero money at the end. That's called the permanent income hypothesis from Milton Friedman. Uh, in fact, we find that that's not at all how people behave. But the real trick here is that if you, as an individual, if you save by spending less than you earn, that means you spend less on other people and you actually generate less national income. Yep. So the decision to save, as we've gone through in, in detail and I've done this in a couple of blog posts as well, an individual's decision to save causes directly causes precisely the same fall in national income. If you don't spend, if you decide not to spend five pounds, that is five pounds less income than by other people. So your saving of five pounds generates a five pound fall in national income. That's just strict accounting. The, so, argument, the argument would be with a pension, of course, is I will spend it. My, my, it's just delayed. I will be spending it later on in but, life. But then the argument comes, well, what do people actually do when there's a five-pound fall on their income? Do they think, oh, that person, my income has fallen because this person is saving to spend in the future. So I'm going to invest now to have the goods in future to sell to them when they want to spend that money. No, people say, God, my <laughs> income has fallen. I've got to spend less. And you've got to spiral towards zero. Mm. So this this is the first the first problem. And that, the that, second, that, that, before you yeah. go on the second one, that, of course, is compounded yeah. by the fact that young people now are not not uh, saving, um, saving to spend later. They're actually they're, they're, they're getting debt very early on because they've spent all that. Well, I mean, they have spent, but they've spent it on university educations, for for, for example. Yeah. So, yeah. so they're steeped in debt before they can even start uh, having enough money to be able to save. That's right. So um, they're, you know, they're, we've, we've completely stimulated. Well, we, again, we have a set of myths driving how we uh, manage a fundamentally important part of our society, which is how do you take care of people after they're no longer able to earn an income by work? Mm. That's what it comes down to. The capitalists uh, always earned an income by not working. I mean, they're working. You know, I'm not, they're not denigrating capitalists here. I'm saying that they don't do physical labor and their income stream is not dependent upon whether they physically work or not. At the end, they've got capital assets. Their income will come from that. And we then extrapolate that to the entire society. So why can't everybody do that? Well, it's the same reason not everybody can be up on a seesaw at the same time. Um, if, if, again, that's the whole savings, your savings becomes, becomes a fall in income for other people. And it's really the, it's really the we're talking about the working class and, and the, the middle class not the upper class. The upper class is going to have capital assets. How do we take care of the people at the bottom end of the, sp the spectrum? Now, if we say they've got to save for their futures, they've got to be saving out of lower incomes than the wealthy ones are. How much are they going to have set aside? It means that if we rely upon individual provision, the amount of money you have in your old age will be less than your needs because you simply can't save enough yeah. out of a working class income to be able to support yourself in your retirement. You will indeed instead starve or find yourself working, you know, selling newspapers on street corners at the age of 75. And uh, that is not a social compact that works for the long-term sustainability of society. Right. And that, of course, is getting worse, isn't it? Because we've had pension funds, you know, people have been uh, saving their money. It's gone into pension funds. Those pension funds uh, have in invested that money in stocks and shares that uh, haven't performed or in bonds that are, are, are giving very low yields. So the expectation that was set many years ago about how those pension funds are going to deliver is not being realised either. No, oh, yeah, they've been basically those pension funds have also caused stock market bubbles. My favourite instance that was the '87 bubble, uh, because it was actually particularly extreme in Australia, which we you know was living at the time. And in the ten months between uh, January and October 1987, stock prices in Australia rose eighty percent. 
Now, over for the and looking at where did the buying volume come from, a huge part of that buying volume actually came from superannuation funds. And again, you look at the numbers. I think in 1982 or three, 30 percent of superannuation money was going into the stock market. By 1987, 70% of the superannuation money was going into the stock market, driving up the prices of, of, of stocks. And then had the, had the bubble burst with a 25% fall in the index in one day in October 1987. And the extrapolations people were making about this continued effectively 80%, you know, well, actually 100% per year increase in the value of their superannuation funds, compounding the future look absolutely uh, you know, wonderfully rosy. Bang, the crash comes and that growth disappears. And the, the gains that they thought they're going to have simply aren't going to be there. So we've actually the superannuation putting money aside and saving for the future has actually been another form of underwriting the stock market bubble, which is completely distorted capitalism. Right. So uh, and putting that money aside, as you said, is pulling money out of the economy as well, money that could have been spent to, to help the economy grow uh, and uh, contribute to the national income. And uh, and in any case, it's not enough to sustain people later in life. So well, the sh- thing we think, yeah, the thing we need is physical resources. And this, this is the other confusion people are making. You can you say what when you do when you're saving money for your future, yada, 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 you're putting aside money to buy commodities at some time in the future. Now, the really important thing for you in that time in the future is can society produce sufficient of those commodities that you're going to be able to eat enough to stay alive and have a comfortable lifestyle? So it's actually the physical productivity of our society that matters far more than the cash reserves, any superannuation scheme or 401k or anything of that nature. And then to make the situation even more confusing or worse, you've got the situation here in, in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in many other parts of the world, where historically the pension liability was held by the company rather than company just paying the money out into a pension fund uh, as they go along, uh, they have basically said, yep, yeah, we guarantee we'll pay that pension for you when you retire. Uh, and then when it comes to retirement age, they perhaps haven't got that money anymore, which is what we saw with BHS. And the companies often use those things as provisions to enable them to get over you know, ups and downs in their own cash flows. And of course, if they, if they have a total down in the cash flow, the pension fund has no money, which is the situation we found with BHS. So doesn't this all point to the idea then that really, rather than us all saving, uh, we should just spend our money and then uh, we'll look after in our old age through a state pension. Yeah, I think the state the state pension going away from that was always a mistake, and it's always driven by these myths about uh, effectively the, the myths that have driven neoliberalism in general. It should all be done by the individual. The private sector is better than the government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, this is fundamentally what it, what what it what it is is a decision about how much you're going to put a fire aside for people who no longer work, and is it physically possible to carry those people? And that, that's that's the other issue that's tied up in here the whole demographic shift which we've seen in Western societies as societies reach uh, maximum populations, and that's obviously the case in places like Italy, Japan, France, uh, the, the populations have all stabilised and in most cases, many cases are falling. Uh, then you have an older workforce you have you have a, a smaller workforce relative to those who are past retirement age. You've also had the increase in uh, people's uh, living standards, uh, lifespans, given you know, pharmaceuticals uh, improvements in in um, sanitation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the average lifespan back in the 1980s, uh, 1800s, of the order of 40 or 50. Now it's twice that level. Uh, can we produce the physical output? The answer to all those question is yes, we can. We've developed the technology to do it. We're simply not putting enough of that technology in place, and that comes back to 
all the problems in terms of speculation dominating capitalism these days rather than investment. But if we say, well, okay, the government's going to provide the money uh, for people in their old age. We've got a, a, a static population. We've got more old people. They, they, I mean, we've talked about how governments can create money through their through their central banks, and you know, we're seeing it through quantitative easing now anyway. Uh, so perhaps nothing new there. But if you've got a country which has got an aging population, then they say, okay, we'll generate more money to cope with the increasing number of people in their old age that we need to look after. They're generating money, but they're not producing more as a country. Isn't that going to weaken their currency? No, that, this is why you've got to be looking at the, the, how much are you physically producing. Are you producing enough? And that comes down to whether you've got enough of industrial base. Yeah. And, of course, countries, particularly like the UK, that let their industrial base erode. They don't have the physical productive capability. That's more of the issue. Uh, you want to have that physical productive capability. So you can say, here's our estimate of the amount of, you know, effectively widgets you can consume per day in your old age. And is that enough to give you a comfortable lifestyle? It's, it's that physical issue which has been missed in all the – obsession about putting aside the cash and believing the cash has to be accumulated by individuals rather than being created by the government, which, of course, is the other option. Right. But, I mean, this creates a problem, doesn't it? Because if you are a country like it's the UK, part- which is pretty deindustrialized, and you have products that you need to uh, to feed and clothe old people, uh, then if the state is providing the money to buy those things, those things are going to be uh, bought from overseas with, with foreign currency. Um uh, so, you, I mean, what do you do in that circumstance? Then you're going to have a trade deficit, as you say, because they're going to be, when they when they spend whatever money they might have, uh, that's going to be spent importing goods rather than buying goods locally. And then you have, as well as not having the industrial base to supply them, you've also got the, the currency effect yeah. uh, added on which top of that. You, which means be, there's yeah. no way of avoiding debt. You, I mean, you can't create the money because you're using, because it's not your money to create. You're buying stuff in foreign dollars. So, you are going to add to your, to your, to your government debt. Yeah, so the real solution is to is to industrialize to actually have that uh, productive capability and that is uh Mm. You know, it's something which both the government and the private sector can do if there's actually sufficient investment taking place. And it's the lack of investment that means we don't have the physical capability to provide for people as they get older. Right. So, but that's I harder mean, to do if it, you've got a static population, you've got more old people. It's harder to industrialize because you've got less people to, to work in those in, in those factories. Unless, of course, but, but we use but robots, I guess. That's within that endless, of course, we do exactly what we are doing. And this is, uh, mm, if you look yeah. at the level of uh, uh, robotics in Japan, Japan is actually an interesting intriguing case in so many ways because it was the first country to get caught in the private debt bubble trap back in 1990. It's also a country suffering a serious demographic decline, so population is falling there. But at the same time, per capita incomes are of, of in, when you actually take out the impact of, of price changes, monetary changes and so on, per capita incomes are quite comfortable, thanks very much. The cost of living is falling because housing has been getting cheaper for the last 25, 30 years. And the productivity has been maintained because there's a high level of robots and robotic development in Japan than anywhere else in the world. So the robots are doing the work. And this is what, again, coming back to my point in energy some time ago, this is what we should be aiming for. We should be aiming for a world in which the vast majority of production is generated by machinery, which can actually be be internally operated. 
uh, we have robots taking over, algorithms taking over and so on. We don't actually need the physical labour as much as we used to do to produce that output and therefore we can cope with the demographic shift if only we realise that we have the technology to do it. Okay, and this brings in again this argument about protectionism then, doesn't it? That uh, you need protectionism to try and allow uh, industries and these technologies to develop rather than uh, having them distorted by, for example, low cost of labour overseas, uh, which might be cheaper in the short term, but in the long term, uh, you really want to start producing these things locally because you don't want to have that liability of, of having to pay in foreign dollars. Yeah, and this is, again, this, England is a classic example of that because with its overvalued exchange rate um, and its focus upon trade and finance rather than industry, uh, it's reduced its own capability to provide the goods and services as people will need when they reach retirement age. And so we're seeing this the story being told you were going to be retiring at 67, 69, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think it was a tweet I saw, maybe may been an article with a, a, a um, factory worker saying, you know, what, what, the, what, the, what the stuff are you talking about worked, working till 67? He said, have you seen what arthritis does to my ability to handle tools? Mm. And, and this is the thing. We, we have a, a people making decisions about retirement age, again, based on the myth that Money has to be put aside rather than goods create, good producing capability being created. Uh, happily is deciding that they could work to 67, they can work to 69. That's because they don't do any manual labor. Yeah. Now, where, where we have the working class and the, and the, and the poor where, where they are doing manual labor, if we even talk about factories where they work as industrial workers, um, that, that is physically becomes very difficult after the age of 60. And it's why we set the retirement age of 65 in the first place. And what we should be attempting to do is actually reduce that retirement age rather than increase it. Right. And this again points to the argument about having a universal wage, doesn't it? So when you're working, you can use that as a base and then uh, get incremental revenue from your job. When you're older, uh, perhaps you just survive on the mm. universal wage as long as it's enough. And that should be the basis of it. It should be enough for one person to live off. And also as part of where, in- where demand is generated as well, because this is the other side of it, that we're actually reducing demand in the economy all the time by this focus on reducing costs. So, um, yeah, it's actually, we should have to talk about this too, another blog, uh, another podcast made on on the topic of universal basic income versus a job guarantee, Yeah, because a, a lot of people on the modern monetary theory crowd are very pro-job guarantee and very anti-universal basic income. Now, I think they're missing the point to some extent here, which we're, we're discussing now by talking about pension age. Um, there are people who you know, a substantial part of the population is going to be past the age where they are capable of physical work or want to do any work of that nature. Yeah. And in that case, the UBI, I think, is the way to go. We have to talk about a transition between the two. Okay. But a lot of this job guarantee stuff, I think, is just ignoring the fact that as time goes on, something of the order of 50% of the population is going to be past the age where they actually want to work in the first place. And the other thing, so we don't give, you've almost given that whole podcast away, but we'll find something uh, else to talk about, I'm sure. Uh, but look, I mean, the final, the, the, the final, we can fill in the gaps, absolutely. The, the, I mean, I guess the other thing is, you know, if, uh, if old people die, uh, then uh, their demand for goods slips away as well. So actually keeping them a, a, a alive a bit longer might actually be good for society anyway. Perhaps we owe it to them. Um, but, but also, you know, it's good for the economy, obviously. And uh, if they don't have any money in their old age, um, then they're not contributing to uh, to the demand part of the equation. So uh, yeah. that's an important factor too. Look, uh, great stuff. We'll talk again soon. 
Okay, mate. And look, two very interesting podcasts coming up as well over the next week or two. Uh, next time, should we care about exact pay? Well, the British Prime Minister Theresa May seems to be concerned about it. She's proposing all sorts of ways that we can crack down on executive pay. What I- impact does it have on the economy? Or is it just politics of envy? Uh, we'll look at that next time. And also, does QE help the poor as well as the rich? Well, the Vice President of the European Central Bank seems to think it's helping to reduce inequality. Uh, Steve doesn't seem to think so. We'll find the arguments on both sides. That's it in future episodes of the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Catch you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.